Well, I want to welcome everybody to uh, church this morning. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, and it's great, great to see you guys. I'm going to talk about what I was doing in just uh, a moment, but I want to welcome everyone here and uh, just remind you, gosh, our worship team does such a great job just leading us, but also um, the song selection um, for the message I'm going to preach today. I, I know it, by the way. You haven't heard it yet, but I'm pretty familiar with it. Um, the song selection for today's message is just perfect. And uh, week after week, I just sit there and, and I'm amazed how good, how, how well Ron puts things together and uh, Preston leading today. Just really appreciate that. want to remind you of a couple of things. Our offerings uh, are all kind of uh, non, we don't pass the basket in here. Uh, our offering baskets are at the doors. You can see them on the way out and you can uh, be faithful in supporting the, the, the work of the Lord as an act of worship and stewardship. Also want to remind you the prayer card that is somewhere near you in a seat there. We really take that seriously. It's, it's one of the most important ways we shepherd our body, um, how we know what's going on. Our small group ministry is really where people are cared for. I joke around a lot. I was talking to um, some leaders of a church in the Czech Republic last week and, and kind of talked to them and just said, um, our small groups care for one another um, in, in such a degree that if I show up at the hospital to visit you, you're probably dying. So just, if you see me at the hospital, it's probably not a good sign, because I'm counting on a lot of other people to take care of you before I get there. Um, <clears throat> but if you've got things that you need us to pray about, we would love for you to put that on the, uh, on the card there. And if you're a visitor, you can fill that out and let us know um, that, that you're visiting, and we'll contact you with some more information about the church. Um, in terms of welcoming people and thanking people for joining us, we've got a really amazing uh, guest this morning. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Dan and Kathy to come up here. Dan Gerald was the first pastor here at Fellowship, and so there's a lot, and Molly's going to come up here with him. Um, and there's, gosh, a lot that you all are indebted to um, because of uh, really the path that Dan set this church on. Uh, and Dan and I have had a weird kind of moving back and forth. I grew up in Alaska, pastored in Alaska for five years, and then uh, was in Colorado and then Washington and then have been here for a long time. Uh, Dan was here, uh, then went to fellowship in Little Rock, and then went to pastor for a long time, a church in Anchorage, uh, where I, uh, back, I was poking around, and I know one of the elders, one of the elders was one of our best friends, Tim mm -hmm. Tillman. Oh, yeah. uh, and so Tim and, and Julie were just fantastic friends of ours. So we've had this weird switch. I'm going to start making, stop making connections and let Dan say something to the church that, uh, gosh, you pioneered so many years ago and did such a great job laying foundations. Well, first of all, let me tell you, I didn't pioneer anything. I joined a group of people that God was doing amazing work in, and I just had the great privilege of being the one to keep them centered around the Scripture. It was just so fun. These are fun days. This is my wife, Kathy, of 40 years. This is my daughter, Molly. She is our youngest, and she turned 23 just a few days ago. So, uh, I got to tell you, Ken, I'm just a little overwhelmed. Uh, when I see the fruit of what God has done over the last more years than I want to count, <laughs> it was in 1988 that just a handful of people decided we wanted to plant a church in Conway based around the single concept that if we would just be in love with Jesus, if we would just abide in Him, that John 15 was true. If we not worry about what we achieve or what we accomplish, but, but only be concerned about who Jesus is in us and who we're becoming in Him, that our lives would flourish. 
and our families would flourish and our church would flourish and the community around us would flourish. And that was our conviction. And I tell you, you, you don't know the joy it was for me to drive down here to a building I'd never seen and seen this etching on the side of the wall, rooted in being... I only got the bottom half. Not fruits of doing. Fruits of doing, right? I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm drowning in a, in a bat of fruit as I watch all of you. That's a good thing, right? That's such a good thing. Okay. You know, uh, I remember when we were down at the little church in morning, on Morningside Drive. It's no longer there. Arnold, you'd remember this. Bill, others of you here. We didn't have worship leaders. We didn't have anybody played an instrument. So one summer, we said, okay, every community group is responsible. Yeah, those of you who were there are sharing my pain. Every community group is responsible for one Sunday this summer. We're not doing that again. Yeah, now Robert Lewis said, oh, good, you're letting the church be the church. Well... Let me just tell you, when you're a preacher, you, the worship, you want it to build a wave so you can kind of... I had to paddle out. <laughs> it, but it was so good. It's just the church being... It wasn't about how we performed or any of that. It was a place of grace where Jesus lived. And He lived in us. I see that flourishing in you. And I'm just so excited for you. You have no idea what God will do in the years to come if you stay focused on the vine and not the fruit. The fruit does not feed the branch. Only the vine does. The system goes one way. And anybody you talk to who says it doesn't matter which way the system goes has never lived, lived with a septic system. <laughs> it really does matter. It goes one way. If you abide in me, and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. You make disciples, Jesus said. I'll build a church. May God bless you in the years to come. May he fill your lives with the richness of his presence and an understanding of his grace. May your families and your marriages and your work relationships flourish as you become the vision of what it means to be, the incarnation of the grace of Jesus in the world. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. As I've followed in the footsteps of Dan over these years, I can see there's a ponytail in my future. So, yeah. so, Dan, yeah, I can't see it here. Dan, thank you so much. Uh, we are deeply, deeply appreciative of you being here. If I would have known a couple days earlier, I would have had you uh, speak, and so we, we still may try to work that out. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've had a year this past year in 2022 of partnering with uh, our mission partners all around the world. We had a year where we brought them all in and had uh, all of them stay for weeks at a time sometimes, uh, and sharing with you the ministry that's taking place around the world. And I had a great privilege over the past couple of weeks uh, to be back in the Czech Republic where a number of our ministry partners are and to engage with them. Um, I spoke at a church. I preached at two churches. I met with a bunch of elders, met with a lot of friends, um, had some great 
great experiences and a really good time. One of the main things that I do while I'm there, though, is I, I uh, lead a men's conference. And so there's a, a, a conference that started about seven years ago. Um, the only men's thing that happens in Bohemia, the western side of the Czech Republic. And when we started years ago, uh, we had about 20 guys. Uh, this year we had 50 men filling this room, and uh, there's really not much room for any more, but we had a great, great time. And I wanted to uh, share with you just a testimony of one of the men. These, there's about eight testimonies that are on our website. If you want to uh, look for them, go to the website, look under missions. You can see a number of the testimonies for the men who are there. But I wanted to share the testimony of uh, Peter Dvorak. He, um, he actually says something about you guys, and I just want, to, want you to catch how he talks about you. Um, and so I think it's really great. So here's a, a, one of the testimonies from one of our guys. So Peter, you come back year after year. Why, why, why do you come back every year? I thought about it, and I think that one important thing is that I'm getting some power from uh, being with, with men and with a word. Mm-hmm. Well, what have you noticed change over the years? And this is interesting because I noticed it this time. A few years ago, and every uh, another meeting, I heard some basic ideas, basic rules how to behave in uh, our lives. And I had some idea that it relates to uh, your job in uh, uh, in your country uh, that you you try to put the people from the floor somehow a little bit higher and this is important to give them uh, the baby but this time i had some feeling that you are growing us you are get, giving this time a little bit more complex ideas to us i think I don't know whether you know it, whether it is planned, but I feel that it is so, and I think that you you trust us. <laughs> Thank you. That's great, and I do. Okay. So, for those of you who are on the floor, come on. I'm trying to lift you up a little bit off the floor. Appreciate uh, appreciate uh, you guys giving me the opportunity to go visit them. It was a great time. I can tell stories for a long time, but I'm going to move on. We are doing a survey of the Bible. Um, and as we move through that survey, just want to remind you, my purpose is not for us to just get through the Bible so you can say, okay, we went through the Bible. My purpose is to give you the tools to spend time in God's word on your own so that you kind of have a, a, an overview of what's going on in all of these books. And so um, I, I'm really trying to give you resources and, and, and empower you to do that. We covered uh, the Pentateuch, which is really the foundation of the theocracy. This is God's plan for his people. It gets it all started uh, with our problem of rebellion against God and God's gracious, wonderful provision to rescue us again and again by his grace when we put faith in him. But then also kind of how he says, here's what my people look like in the world. That's the law, and here's um, how they maintain fellowship with me by taking care of their sins. The law doesn't save anybody. The sacrifices didn't save anybody. Those are all the ways that we are distinctive in the world, and we repair our relationship uh, with God. We have moved now into uh, the historical books. This is the outworking of the theocracy. It's God's work with his people. You see God's plan, how it's going to play itself out, uh, and now this is God working that plan out. We've looked at Joshua and Judges. And today we're going to look at the book of Ruth. And we just recently spent a number of weeks in Ruth, and we talked about it as faithful living 
in a hostile world. Um, Ruth takes place during the time of the book of Judges, which we covered over 28 weeks, a hostile world that is in rebellion against God. And there's this little um, caveat of this one little story of a family um, where these people are being faithful to God. And I did seven messages on that, 25 resource handouts that you can find on the web. Um, And the book of Ruth is really presenting not only these faithful people, when you look at at the people and the people you identify with. It's these two exceptional people in the midst of a crazy, hostile, chaotic world who are being faithful to do what God wants them to do. But also embedded in this story is the amazing hidden hand of God. Um, God is working in this story, but it's very subtle and it's behind the scenes. Chapter 2, verse 3 says this. Naomi said to her, Naomi's talking to Ruth, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered into a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. That's Naomi's husband. Um, As it turned out is is an interesting translation. You could do a lot of things with this, as it turned out. Uh, But I highlighted when we moved through this that literally, the Hebrew says that her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. It's like, oh, it just accidentally happened. This is, this is hyperbolic irony. This is, this is, oh yeah, it just so happened. No, the point is that, that God is working this out. And the book of Ruth is so beautiful in how it's arranged and, and how, it, how it tells the story. And we, we've looked at all of those details. Um, Alan Ross says this, very few books in the Bible emphasize the sovereignty of God more than the book of Ruth. However, it does it in a hidden and subtle way. It kind of sneaks up on you in this book. And God's sovereignty is like that in our lives. Often it's hidden, it's subtle, and his sovereignty sneaks up on you where you all of a sudden you realize, oh, I didn't know that was God's plan. He wasn't leading me. It just seemed like I happened to, you know, chance upon this opportunity. But God's sovereignty is there. Look for God sneaking up on you in your life because God is sovereign. He is in control. Danny Hayes says it this way. The book of Ruth illustrates how God is at work very quietly and behind the scenes to provide a solution which is going to end up being a deliverer, David, the, the ancestor of Christ, a, a solution to the terrible situation uh, Israel has created for itself in the book of Judges. Thus, Ruth bridges the story from Judges, disaster in Israel, to First and Second Samuel, David the hero. And next week, we're going to look at First and Second Samuel. We're going to see that movement from, from the Judges to Samuel, uh, to Saul, to David, and we're going to see that transition. Uh, but, but David is kind of the hope because it's the line of David that's going to get us to Jesus Christ. We also emphasize something else in this book, the theme of the book. Um, it, it comes out a number of times, three times, this, this really important word is seen. The Lord bless Boaz, this is Naomi speaking. Uh, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. Now, this word kindness is a word that we spend a lot of time on. Again, I mentioned I've got four books in my library, four books on this single word. Uh, One of them entitled inexpressible. This word chesed um, is a significant word in the Bible. And I'm going to talk about it for just a moment. But I want to highlight how it's used in this book. Um, Naomi says the Lord bless him, literally, but we know it's Boaz. He has not stopped showing chesed. Who's the he here? Is, Is it the Lord bless him because the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness? Or the Lord bless him because he, Boaz, has not stopped showing his kindness. And as I pointed out, I think it's yes. It's both of them because so often God shows his hesed kindness 
through other people because that's part of this concept of when you receive hesed, you want to give hesed. And so here the Lord is hesed, Boaz is hesed, but we also find out that, that Ruth is this word as well. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. And this is Boaz talking to Ruth. This chesed, kindness, is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. You've been faithful to your covenant. You've been faithful to the commitments you've made, and you've acted appropriately in relationship to those. This idea of chesed is a significant word. It's translated often loyal love. Here it's just translated kindness. Um, It's a well-known Hebrew word used 246 times. It's God's loyal covenant faithfulness to those who, uh, with whom he is in relationship because of his grace. It describes God's, cov- God's faithful love to keep covenant promises. Um, again, in the resources for Ruth, there are four or five handouts that are all about this word. Uh, one of them that I would call your attention back to is by Dan Block. And uh, here's one part of what he said. Hesed is one of those Hebrew words whose meaning cannot be captured in one English word. This is a strong relational term that wraps up in itself an entire cluster of concepts. All the positive attributes of God, love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness, in short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. This chesed idea um, is, is really significant, and I'm, I'm reviewing it because it's really what we see in this book. God is chesed, and he uses people who express chesed, Boaz and Ruth, to accomplish his great purposes. Um, My best work at summarizing it more than something very long (laughs) is that it's selfless acts of generous kindness. It it is selfless acts. When you have resources that you don't have to use for somebody else, but you choose to use them, and you are generous in your kindness, that's what hesed is. And that's really the theme in this book. God is subtly, because of his hesed, because of his covenant loyalty, to keep his promises. He's working behind the scenes to move these people from the dark days of the judges to the hopeful future of David. That's what's going on in the book of Ruth. So now we're going to move through kind of our template for these messages and talk about um, who's writing, when is he writing, and when do the people live, where are they, and why is this book being written? So let's take a look at this. Who composed Ruth? As with the book of Judges, The author of Ruth is unidentified, but details seem to indicate someone who was close to the time period when the events took place. Again, Samuel's a good suggestion. The rabbis feel like Samuel did it. It really, we don't know, but it's somebody who seems to know the stories well. I mean, he he knows details of the times that all of these things happen. Um, So when when did it happen? The very first verse of the book of Ruth says, in the times when the judges ruled. So the events in Judges are therefore in the book of Ruth and therefore in the book of Ruth, take place sometime during a roughly 325-year period of the judges that date from the death of Joshua when he was 110 years old in 1375 B.C. to just before the reign of Saul in 1050 B.C. So that's when the events themselves take place. So let me place the events, not the writing of the book. The events take place. This is our big chart on uh, the, the, the flow of Old Testament history. I'm going to deal a little bit more with this next week as we get into some important things with united and divided kingdoms in Israel. But if we zero in on a part where we're talking about, we're looking at this. The exodus from Israel is in 1446 B.C. Remember, we're moving towards zero in B.C. 
um, the death of Joshua, 1375, and then uh, Ruth takes place down here between the death of Joshua and the reign of Saul. That's, we, we know Saul's not reigning yet. Um, and so that's, that's when these events take place. Now, the question becomes, uh, where, when, when did it get written? Now, when the events take place, are Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, these main characters, I'm going to talk about the main characters at the end of this message, they were living during the chaotic time of the judges in the midst of the rise of foreign oppressors, especially the Philistines. So these foreign oppressors that you see in Judges continue to be present once they start to get kings, Saul and David. They're trying to deal with these foreign oppressors. David does a much better job than Saul. So when was Ruth composed? Well, because it ends with the birth of David, Ruth seems to have been written sometime at the close of the reign of David, close to the reign of David, establishing and this is what it's doing, establishing the sovereign hand of God, subtly behind the scenes, in raising up this Davidic line. Ruth, for the original readers, presents a backdrop for the superiority of the reign of David over the reign of Saul. For the original readers, they would say, this book shows God's hand in getting David here. David is our guy. David is the one through whom God is going to work. Now, let me just put that in context. When you kind of zero in, here's what you, you get. We'll see this a little more clearly next week. Um, Saul begins his reign in 1050. Each one of these guys in what's called the United Kingdom, Saul, David, and Solomon, before the kingdom splits into the north and the south, each one of them reigned for about 40 years. David begins his reign in 1010, and Solomon is going to begin his reign in 970. Now, what's going to happen here is the book of Ruth is written, it, the events take place back, back during the time of Judges, but it is written somewhere near the reign of David because it's showing David is superior to Saul. God's hand was involved in every event getting us to the time of David. So that's what's going on here in the book. Now we've said it. Now, where were they? The people were living in the land of Israel. It's a, it's a very short story and pretty localized. They're living at the beginning of the Davidic reign, the people who were receiving this. And David is likely trying to unite the kingdom, drive out the foreign oppressors, especially the Philistines. And this book shows this new king, David, he's the one God's going to use to deliver us from our oppressors. Now, where they are, this is a map of the land of Israel. They are in Bethlehem. They start in Bethlehem. The story starts there. But very quickly, they move to Moab. That's about 75 miles away as they journey. Uh, and they make it their way to Moab. Um, Elimelech and Naomi move there with their two sons. Elimelech and the two sons die after they marry some girls. And 10 years later, they're going to move back to Bethlehem. But the t when they come back to Bethlehem, now it's only Naomi and one of the daughter-in-laws, Ruth. So this is what happens. They're in Bethlehem. They go away for 10 years. They come back. Okay? So that's what's happening in this story. Why was Ruth written? Ruth was written to show God's people that the Lord was instrumental in sovereignly bringing into existence the Davidic monarchy by his mighty but often hidden guidance. Now, this is significant in the Old Testament because David is kind of this, okay, he's our solution, although we're going to see very clearly it's actually only his line and his ancestor who's going to be our solution. But we had to get to this climactic moment of we've got David. Um, I mean, the, the sign for Israel is the star of David. Um, David is, is, is the king, this ultimate king, um, but he's really only just a shadow of the real king that we're looking for in Jesus Christ. So for the original right readers, 
This is showing David is the right guy because God's hand is involved in everything that he does. The sovereign Lord is always at work to bring about his plan and fulfill his promises, regardless of how it may look at the time. This is what they would have heard, but I want you to hear too. God is always at work. He's always bringing about his plan. He's going to fulfill his promises because he's full of hesed. He's the definition of hesed, of loyalty to his people and kind, generous acts. And we need to remember that regardless of how it may look at the time. For the original readers, they have seen the chaos of the period of the judges. They've seen everything go wrong with Saul, the guy they chose. And, and now they're say, seeing God's hand is involved to get us to a better spot. I want you to remember, no matter what it may look like, when you wake up tomorrow morning, God's hand is involved in that. Um, God is going to do good things. It's way easier on us if we'll be faithful and loyal to him like Boaz and Ruth. Way easier. God will fulfill his promises. Our participation, experience of joy and fulfillment in those promises and his plan um, is, is determined by how, how faithful we are to him. It's, it's obedience and And as Dan just said, it's abiding in him. When we're abiding in him, God uses us to produce fruit in his program. So we're moving through this pretty quickly. The content, how is this arranged and what is he trying to say? Um, This is fascinating, and I didn't really highlight this when we went through the book of Ruth. I knew this message was coming, so I I waited a little bit to, to demonstrate this to you. But Ruth has a fascinating, fascinating structure. This is it. Um, it, is, it is presented on your outline in I understand tiny print. I, I'm not expecting anyone to, to read this. I couldn't read it with a magnifying glass. I, I, it's not there for you to read. It's there for you to see the structure. And so I want to highlight the structure of this book, okay? The whole book from beginning to end is presented in what is called a chiastic structure. Now, sometimes there are smaller little chiasms one of the most fascinating is in the Tower of Babel story. Fascinating chiastic structure in that story. But this whole book, all four chapters, forms this chiasm. What that means is this. The first part of the book is moving up. And then the next part of the book parallels that on its way out. And so every single section has a parallel section that moves the opposite way at the end of the book. Now, literally, that is just cool. That The whole book is that way. I get it. That's just cool. Theologically, this really says something important to us about God's passion to reverse things. Chiastic structures, and they're very common, actually, um, they really show God reversing the fortunes of people because that's what he does. We call it redemption. We call it salvation. We're on a mess. God saves us. That's a reversal. Um, there's in this book a, a real reversal that takes place. I'm going to highlight it for you on the chart. And again, um, the chart is out there at the Connection Center. You can get it off the website. Um, I, I revised it even yesterday, and we'll probably revise it tomorrow. So don't obsess about getting current charts. Uh, there's a few of the charts of judges out there. Um, but, but here's the chart in Ruth. And I want to just highlight a couple of things. As the book flows, it, the first couple of verses are 10 years. Then the romance story, this whole Boaz and Ruth in his fields and um, them um, getting engaged on the threshing floor and then figuring all of that out, that really just takes about 50 days because we know it starts at the beginning of the barley harvest 
And it's going to end during the wheat harvest, okay? About 50 days from Pentecost or from Passover to Pentecost is really what's happening here. These two important harvesting times. So the whole story, other than this 10-year real quick Moab and back, is about 50 days. Now, the climax of the story takes place one day as Boaz encounters the, um, the nearer kinsman redeemer, whose name is, is um, so obviously left out. They, they use this funny term, Poloni Almoni, to say, hey, he's just a so-and-so. He, he, he's nobody. He's, he's a nobody because he didn't step in to do what he could do in the story. So we're not even going to remember his name. He's Poloni Almoni. He's just a guy. Um, the, the English translations do funny things with it. They call him friend. Hello, friend. Oh, he's kind of going, hey, dude. Um, that's really who this guy is because he won't step into the story. And because he doesn't step into the story, it gives Boaz the opportunity to step into the story. But the thing I want to highlight here is the reversal of this book. The, the book is going to begin in the dark days of the judges with famine and death. That's how we start. Um, <laughs> reminds me, one of the things, I'm looking at the time here, I've got a moment. One of, the, one of the things that I did while I was in the Czech Republic is I got to go to an opera. I got to go to Dvorak's Rosalka um, opera. I'm sure everyone's familiar with it. I wasn't. Um, but I had to do some reading on it. And as I was reading about this opera, I, I got to the end of it. And it's kind of the Little Mermaid story. Okay, it's Little Mermaid, except at the end, everyone dies and is unhappy, which is so typically Czech. I mean, it's just, oh, this is how every Czech story dies or ends. They're dead and unhappy. Um, this is how the book begins. It's a very Czech story. Um, famine, death, unhappiness, and you come back with um, Naomi saying, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Na- Naomi, actually, in, in Israel, it's how you say uh, you're welcome. If you say toda, thank you, in, in Hebrew, the response back is, oh, it's pleasant, Naomi. Uh, Naomi means pleasant. It's been pleasant to, to do this for you. Um, she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, bitter. The book starts bitter, sorrow, famine, death. But God reverses everything so that at the end of the book, where you end up is birth. Um, Boaz and Ruth get married. She has a child. This child's name is Obed, and he has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David. And so now you, you kind of look forward. There's birth, and it's at the harvest time because that's exactly when the, the encounter between Boaz and, and Ruth takes place. On the threshing floor, they're harvesting. No longer a famine in the land. Harvesting. Life. And no longer dark days of the judges, but the bright future of David. And the whole book just reverses everything. But that reversal is based on God's very hidden hand. You can't see it very often. It sometimes looked like her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. And just some bad things happen and some things other happen and you got a guy who's willing and a girl who's willing and they're faithful and it highlights though that they are, they are people who, who express chesed. But I want to pause for just a moment and talk about the people God uses. People that God uses are people like Boaz and Ruth. Here's what it says about Boaz. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. This idea of a man of standing, it's a gibor hayel. 
um, in other places, if it would have been in a military context, um, it would have been translated as a mighty man of valor or a mighty warrior. But there's no battle taking place. But the idea of this is this man has good standing in the community. He's a man of good reputation. Um, he's a man um, who, who is valorous. He, he has valor to him. He's certainly wealthy. He, he has some resources, and that's true in this story. But he's a man of honor who uses his resources to care for others. His gleaning, his allowing the gleaning in the field is just uh, exemplary. Um, he probably takes care of many in, as he's employing them. He's generous, has a good heart. He's noble enough that when he arrives on the scene, all of the workers said, the Lord bless you. And he says, bless you too. Because he's, he's noble, he's experienced, he's, he's influential, but he's also spiritual. He's an aristocrat in the best sense of the word. He's virtuous in the sense of the word being used as a virtuoso. He's living his life as a virtuoso. Again, I tried to illustrate this with Boaz Grantham from uh, Downton Abbey. Here's a man who's wealthy, influential, powerful. He's an aristocrat, and he's a community benefactor. This is, this, is, this is Boaz in the book. He's got a lot of resources. He's employing a lot of people. He's taking care of them. Um, well, Boaz is this Gibor Chayel. He, he, is, he is a mighty aristocratic man of valor. Ruth is also talked about in these terms. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. Uh, this is Boaz talking to Ruth. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. This is an Isha Hayel. Not a Gibor Hayel, but an Isha Hayel. Um, this Hebrew term, very same term, Hayel, is used of an aristocratic woman and translated woman of noble character. The idea is that this is a woman of good standing in the community. She's certainly wealthy, but also cares for others and likely employs many in her community. It's the same word. It's the same concept. She's generous and has a good heart. The word used of Ruth in 3.11 are used in Proverbs 31.10 to describe the epitome of wisdom. At, at the beginning of Proverbs 31.10, it says, a, a woman of Gibor hay, or Isha Hayel, same words, who can find? And then this last section, which I've talked to you again and again, is not just about women. It's the epitome of living the wise life that just happens to be illustrated by a woman. So rather than beating up women, we should kind of live more humble that if you're looking for the epitome of wisdom, it was way easier to illustrate this with a woman than a guy. Um, but this is, this is this woman. And but interestingly, in, in the Hebrew arrangement of the books of the Bible, um, the, the book of Ruth follows that section. It's Proverbs 31 and then the book of Ruth. Because Ruth is the, is, she's the illustration of this wise woman. She is an Isha Hayel. She is Ruth Grantham. She is um, a foreigner, actually, just like Ruth is. She's kind, loyal, gracious, faithful. Um, she's really working to benefit others. In Downton Abbey, um, she goes to work in the hospital, and, and she wants to take care of other people. Now, because I thought it was one of my finest moments, um, Downton Countess Naomi is part of the other kind of bitter person. And if you haven't seen Downton Abbey, I'm sorry, I'm just going to move on. Look at my charts if you're not a Downton Abbey person. Um, so how and what? Let's talk about what is going on in this passage. Um, this is my summary at the bottom of the chart. The author recorded the story of an Israelite family's journey to Moab and back to Bethlehem. The marriage of a faithful Moabitess, Ruth, a loving kinsman redeemer, Boaz, 
And the birth of their son Obed, the ancestor of David, he recorded all of that in order to demonstrate the sovereign providence of Yahweh, which was at work even in the chaotic time of the judges, guiding the history of the nation toward a monarchy and ultimately a theocracy under Christ. This whole path eventually gets to Christ, not always immediately. You're not going to see Christ behind every threshing floor here. Um, but it imme- uh, ultimately is going to lead us to the solution that is Christ. So where do we go with this? Okay, that's the book. I think it's a fantastic book, beautifully arranged, artistically arranged, a compelling story. It's really fantastic. So what? What should we believe based on this book? Here's where I think our, our, our feet should be anchored here. God's sovereign hand is behind every event working to accomplish his purpose. And that may be sovereignly accomplishing his purpose of you being Poloni Almoni, name not remembered in the story, because you won't step into it. God's hand is sovereign in all of that. But God's hand is also sovereign for those who are faithful, who are wanting to be used. My guess is Poloni Almoni was not a bad guy. He just wasn't used because he didn't step into the story. God's hand is is behind every event. And no matter how dark it may seem, no matter how uh, tragic your life may seem when you wake up tomorrow morning, God's hand is involved in all of that. And God uses people of integrity and character to be blessed as a part of his story. These people with integrity and character who are falling in love with Jesus more deeply every day, as I talk about all the time, um, who are... um, allowing the Word of God to be applied by the Spirit of God to the people of God in a community. As that is taking place, you get to be used and be a part in God's story. So how should we behave? Okay, here's my deal. Live as men and women of Hesed and virtue, faithful to the covenant, virtuous lives, because, and now I'm going to make a point, this is not your story. I'm going to back up. As much as this story seems like it's about Boaz and Ruth and their marriage and the birth of their child, this story is not about Boaz and Ruth. This story is about Naomi. Because it starts with Naomi, bitter, feeling like the hand of God is against her. And at the end of the story, when the baby is born, the baby is placed in the hands of Naomi. And the people of the city say, look how God has turned things around for you, Naomi. And Naomi is the one who is is blessed. And they say, your future is bright, Naomi. This story has Boaz and Ruth as characters. But this is not their story. This story is Naomi's story because God is doing something for her. And I want to remind you, the story that we're involved in, it's not our story. Our mission statement, fellowship invites people to enter God's story. If you want it to be your story, go ahead, Poloni Aloni. If you want to be your story, nobody will remember it. But if you'll step into God's story with character and faithfulness to God's covenant, he can use you in a great, great way. So how does this fit together? It's a demonstration of the hand of God moving toward a monarchy that ultimately leads to the Son of God. Your life may be a part of just a step along the way, but as you step into that, God uses you as a part of his great story. So where do we go from here? 
some next steps, okay? Very practically, how do we get from this wonderful story, beautifully arranged, um, important Hebrew words, where do you go? I want you to think hard about what it means to see your story as a part of God's bigger story rather than God being a part of your story. Rather than inviting God to, okay, here's what I'm up to. God, can you be a part of it? Would you bless it? Would you make this thrive? I need a raise. God, can you give me a raise? Rather than seeing it that way, see, see it's God's story and you're saying, okay, how do I step into that? And maybe you need a raise so you can step into it more. Okay, that's a little different framing, isn't it? To pray that way. Consider how you can be more of a blessing to those around you. Consider how you can be more of a Gibor Hayel or an Isha Hayel. You can bless those around you. You can be a person known for generous acts of kindness. You're known that way. And make a, person, make a commitment to live as a person of chesed and virtue. You're faithful to God. You know that he's been faithful to you and you use those blessings to bless others. You're a person with large corners. Boaz has large corners in his field because he, he lets people glean. He's a blessing to other people. Um, do everything that you can to see God's big story unfolding and step into that story. Father, we are so grateful that you are um, you're faithful to us. You're generous and you're benevolent and in a way that's not compelled because we don't deserve anything. Lord, you invite us to be a part of your story and then you use us in some great ways, sometimes subtly and sometimes it takes a while for the story to unfold. But Lord, you're so gracious to involve us. And for those of us who maybe have a bad background like Ruth or who have um, gone through some tragic circumstances or are in the middle of dark and distressing days, Lord, your hand is there, and we pray that you would allow us to see that and grab your hand and walk with you through that path. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us?